3: Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anna Szymanski. This week, we're going to talk about the exit of BlackRock's largest shareholder, Sweden's reopening, and the future of online dating. So I have Anthony Curry here. Now, Anthony, there was some big news this week about the massive asset manager BlackRock. What happened?
2: Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Anna. Great to be, uh, to be back on. Um, so... Uh, It wasn't so much about what BlackRock's doing, although it is doing something as part of this, but it's what its um, longest ever shareholder, and in fact what used to be its uh, entire owner, uh, is doing, and that's PNC Financial Services. For those listeners not in the know about uh, US regional banks, and there's no reason why people abroad necessarily have to be, um, PNC Financial Services is a top 10 US bank by assets with about 412 billion. It's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's run by someone, uh, Bill Demchek, who uh, a very long time ago uh, was a JP Morgan uh, executive. I think he left back in 2000, 2001, kind of guessing that. But it's decided to sell what is now a 22% stake in BlackRock, which uh, so most analysts have, uh, and investors have basically given up on asking them about it. Uh, up until sort of 2013 14, um, Demchek's predecessor, Jim Raw, would always say it's a core part of what we own, we're not getting rid of it. And ever since Demcek came in, they were sort of asking about it and then sort of stopped recently, actually. And lo and behold, he finally does something when they're least expecting it.
3: So, you know, I mean, obviously, BlackRock has done very well. So why are they selling?
2: Well, I think there's there's a few reasons. Um, Firstly, let's look at regulations. Um, There are a few regulations that may be coming into force. The Fed is still uh, sort of discussing what to do with them. But um, under the uh, the Bank Holding Act, which is a 1956 Act, so it's not as if it's a new one, but there are some new tweaks to it, thanks to in part thanks to the Dodd-Frank Act 10 years ago, but the Fed's now getting around to looking at some of it, which is saying, look, okay, you own 22% of BlackRock. Doesn't that basically effectively make you its owner from a regulatory perspective? And if so, then should we start thinking about regulating BlackRock? Um, as some kind of bank. And there's also, BlackRock also earns some some trust services as well, which uh, the Office of the Controller of Currency is also regulating. So there may be some issues there with, you know, if anything changes there, with how BlackRock and thus as a result, uh, PNC might be able to make some money. So I, none of this is, is actually yet written stone. It might not necessarily happen, but by doing this, it removes a headache for both firms. Because the last thing that Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, wants is suddenly to have to find himself being regulated as a, as a bank purely because um, his 22% shareholder now officially, even though it doesn't uh, actually, but it officially on paper, uh, seems to uh, may become its um, uh, its de facto controller, even though it's not.
3: And again, so in what again then is the regulatory benefit for PNC?
2: Uh, well, the main thing is that they don't have to worry about then having to um, consolidate somehow uh, BlackRock and be. Uh, prey to anything that may happen in the in the in the asset management market, which which it likes. I mean, the whole reason for owning this is it's good diversification. I think uh, BlackRock last year accounted for about 15% of um, of PNC's earnings, so it's no small chunk to give away. Especially considering that PNC, you know, trades at a slightly lower multiple, unsurprisingly, as a bank to uh, to the asset manager. But it, it gives it the flexibility then to have more money to go out and do other things that may be a bit more core uh, to its business over time but from a regulatory perspective i think it just removes a headache of maybe having to deal with many regulators over issues that they never ever intended to have once they decided no longer to own a full controlling stake in in uh, PNC and that goes back probably to just after the ipo about 20, 21 years ago
3: and so then you're it seems like you're kind of saying that part of the reason that they did this now because obviously this regulatory issue has been in you know has been the issue for a long yeah. time but is it, as you said, primarily because now, you know, they see more opportunities, especially valuations are lower because of the crisis or are there other reasons well, I, as well? I,
2: I think I'll, just to finish off the regulations, I think there's a sense that the Fed may make some decisions soon. doesn't mean it's gonna go against PNC, but I think there's a fear that it might. So mm-hmm. uh, those those regulations, even though the initial one, well, both acts we're talking about are sort of 10 and 70 years old, uh, the Fed's sort of thinking, how do we think about BlackRock? Uh, and also, I think, as, as you've looked at on the BlackRock side of things, it's a huge money manager should it somehow be considered systemically important. And obviously, with 400 billion or so in assets, PNC is already seen as a systemically important but not a globally systemically important right. bank. So, if that would have changed, that would add even more capital and regulations that PNC, neither PNC nor BlackRock would like to impose on each other, as it were. And um, on, the, on the financial side, look, there, there are two things going on, right? So, firstly, Obviously, you've got um, the COVID-19 pandemic, and you've got banks worrying about how uh, how many losses they are due to take. Now, PNC has already racked up a few. I think in its in its most recent earnings, just over a month ago, uh, it increased uh, quite substantially its um, p- potential loan loss reserves, or its loan loss reserves for potential losses. Um, And overall, I think in its most recent stress test it did with the Federal Reserve, it had to show that it could withstand, I think, almost $9 billion of losses on its assets over a nine quarter period, I think is how the Fed does it. Of course, that may well speed up in the pandemic. I don't think at the moment they're looking at those kind of losses, but they had to have that kind of buffer. I think at the moment we're looking at maybe three to four billion maximum. So they've got They've got leeway to expand that if needs be, if the pandemic worsens. The fear is, of course, I think, as I recall reporting on the the, the global financial crisis 12 years ago, that we would talk about it's all right. These banks, you know, this countrywide, B of A, whatever, they have these buffers. They'll be fine. Then it turns out things got worse. Now, of course, banks are much better protected these days than back then. But it doesn't help to have some extra money in the bank, right? And this deal, I mean, the the 22% stake is worth about $17 From a capital perspective, because BlackRock, uh, PNC already accounts for BlackRock on its balance sheet, about half of that valuation. So from a capital perspective, it will get about eight or nine billion, and then you tax that. Other things have to come out of it. It's probably going to probably going to put an extra five to six billion on the balance sheet, which is pretty handy right now. Mm-hmm. From a cash perspective, they'll get much more than that. They'll have you know the, the the seventeen billion less tax, and that gives them extra cash and wherewithal to go out and you know if they want to, as, as I think as. as as uh, Demchak has, has said when announcing this, uh, to, to go out and buy things if needs be.
3: So what are some of the things you think that PNC might spend this money on?
2: Well, it's funny, actually. I was talking to someone about this um, uh, the day it was announced. This person saying to me, look, uh, it's like PNC, uh, Demchak wants to be almost the, the JP Morgan of this crisis. You think back to 2008, mm-hmm. uh, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, CEO of JP Morgan, uh, bought, uh, first of all, best earns then uh, wells fargo i don't think pnc is going to be uh, doing quite such big deals you never know but you know it's it's a sizable bank as one, as i said one of the top 10 banks of course Demchak didn't work with jamie diamond i don't think but he was certainly a former uh, pre-diamond jp morganer so he's he's obviously looked at what his alma mater has done and as a regional bank you want to make sure you get a, a bigger without having regulations to get in the way and i think you know it's it's still a bit hard for a such a big regional bank to get bigger, but you're going to bet there going to be some some smaller banks are going to get into trouble because of the the, the COVID-19 crisis. And also, I mean, all of these banks want to expand digitally. Right? They've all got their own projects, but the bigger you are, the easier it is uh, to fund all of these um, fintech projects, whether it's deposits, whether it's investing. Cause, you know, why not use this as an opportunity to get into other businesses, even credit cards. And I was just looking and I have no idea if this is what PNC is thinking about. But you know, Discover Financial Services, um, which of course has the Discover card, which is not the best known outside of the US, obviously, but pretty big here. And PNC is mostly, if not exclusively, a US bank. It's halved in value and is now worth less than PNC. So if you think, you know, could we do something as PNC, as, as Bill Demcheck? Maybe they go after something like that, or maybe they go after a fintech player, or maybe they just stick to looking at some of these smaller banks that they didn't get in trouble in in their in their various catchment areas where they think we can swallow this up, cut a lot of costs, and grab our balance sheet without too much of a problem. So, when you've got sort of five, ten billion sitting on the balance sheet in addition to what you need, assuming lo- loan losses don't get that bad, then you know he's, you know, Damchev set himself up pretty nicely.
3: Gotcha. I mean, maybe the last thing to talk about here is maybe go back a little bit to kind of the regulatory situation and what this might mean for BlackRock, like what, what it might mean moving forward as, you know, if we look at what happened after the financial crisis and obviously all of these regulatory changes. Now, in this crisis, obviously, nothing wrong has happened with BlackRock. However, BlackRock has also become much more dominant.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you think back to um, the, the beginning of the financial crisis last time, so 2007, 2008, BlackRock was huge. It was especially huge in fixed income and always has been, mm-hmm. had recently brought bought or done a joint. And I think it bought Merrill Lynch Investment Managers to add some more active assets. But right after the, or in the midst of the crisis, it bought uh, Barclays Global Investors, which was one of the biggest um, uh, index managers. Uh, and now BlackRock, with what seven trillion in assets, is by is easily the world's largest asset manager. It's a huge force um, across the board. You know, along with um, the other big um, index funds. When you think about um, State Street, Vanguard. It owns. I think they often own between sort of 15 and 30% of the major US companies, between the three of them, and BlackRock is often one of the top three shareholders as a result of a lot of companies across across uh, the US and indeed the world. So it now has a lot more heft, passive investing is a lot bigger, ETFs are a lot bigger than they were during the crisis uh, 12 years ago. So it now, as from a regulatory standpoint, yes, it, it won't necessarily cause and shouldn't cause the same kind of runs that you get from deposits being taken at, at banks or banks lending too much uh, to in bad loans and, and securities and and having massive balance sheet problems. But if you're a regulator, you've got to look at look at BlackRock and think it's huge, it's influential, really influential. What do we do about it?
3: Yeah, and it seems like it'll be an interesting question moving forward because again, it's not a bank. You know, it, it's it's you know, capital is less of an issue when you're talking about an asset manager. You know, especially you know this type of asset manager. So I think this will be a really interesting story moving forward about what happens with BlackRock.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think, I think it's something that Larry Fink obviously would would prefer to avoid. They argued successfully uh, 10, 12 years ago not to be included as a GCFI. I think, um, uh, after um, the the big financial meltdown in 2008. Uh, But who knows what happens next? But, you know, PNC has now managed to, uh, is about to extricate itself from this, uh, and you know it's 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 going to do a good job getting getting the money, and it's it's relying on uh, on a secondary offering that is officially being done by BlackRock to, to get the deal done. So uh, and one of the and that's a good deal for banks, right? you think? Not much is happening at the moment in equity markets. Here's a $16 billion deal or so, because BlackRock's mm-hmm. also going to buy a billion back from PNC directly. That's going to keep some bankers on Wall Street pretty happy.
3: Great. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure this will be a topic we will continue talking about uh, in the months and years to come. Yeah, pleasure. So I have Chris Thompson here from the UK. Chris, how are you?
4: I'm okay, thank you. Hanging in there? Just about.
3: <laughs> so, um, so you wrote a piece this week on Sweden, and there's somewhat unique... Um, way that they've handled the crisis. So maybe first just kind of explain to some of our listeners who might not be familiar, like how Sweden's reaction to the crisis has been different than most other countries.
4: Right, I mean, Sweden has been virtually alone, certainly in the West. um, It's been pretty much the only state which has not enforced a lockdown on people, essentially telling people to stay indoors during the COVID-19 pandemic. It has instead, um, it it has banned uh, some very obvious things like gatherings of 50 people or more, but essentially beyond that, it's relied on a series of government recommendations for what people uh, should not do. So for example, it is recommended that, you know, you should not go and visit your elderly relatives. It is recommended that you should not uh, frequent places of, crowded areas or Mm -hmm. you should not heavily kind of socially interact um and so forth so uh you can do that if you want it's not it's not it's a recommendation it's not legally enforceable so that's where sweden has basically diverged from everyone else including uh the uk and and its nordic neighbors um which have imposed uh lockdowns on the on the population and if you 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 disobey that lockdown you stand to get in trouble with the police.
3: Well and so how does the the kind of number of cases and death tolls how do those kind of compare?
4: Well so it's interesting Um, there seems that it's definitely uh, Sweden's death toll is about per million people is round about three hundred and twenty two deaths per million people, Mm -hmm. which is a significantly higher number than its Nordic neighbors. So you're talking Finland, um, Norway and and Denmark, who have Mm -hmm. all, by contrast, implemented lockdowns like the rest of uh, Western Europe. Uh, But three hundred and twenty two deaths per million uh, is also significantly higher than Germany, uh, but it's significantly lower than other countries which did implement lockdowns, such as the UK, such as France, Italy, Spain, um, and so forth. So, so the mortality rate has been higher and it's been, it's been a, you know, the subject of some controversy within Sweden. Mm -hmm. Um, but of course the trade-off has been that the economic damage has been substantially less than in other places.
3: And so how exactly does that economic damage compare thus far?
4: So the eurozone first quarter eurozone GDP came in at just shy of minus four percent. We we okay. just had the first uh, UK GDP first quarter print out today and that the UK did even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, by contrast, Sweden. Uh, so this is quarter on quarter. So the first three months compared to the last three months leading up to the end of 2019. The, contra- the economy contracted by just 0.3 percent, so basically less less than a tenth um, of the of the of the eurozone contraction. So, and 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 you'd expect that to be the case, I guess. Um, you know, as I said, governments haven't implemented; they haven't ordered restaurants and so forth to sh- and bars to shut down. But that said, um, while businesses have been allowed to remain open. You know one of the reasons it's arguably worked or why they persisted with it is because there's a there's a long tradition of kind of trust between mm-hmm. Swedish people and the public authorities so so you know restaurants and and hotels and so forth while you've seen um while while many have remained open they've still seen big downturns in business as people have you know stayed home as per the government recommendations.
3: Right. And so has the government, I mean, do they have any numbers about how people are or are not complying?
4: Um, I i don't think I don't I haven't seen any numbers per se about how they are or not complying. Um, it's more just inferred from right. if, if you look at if you look at VAT receipts, for example, for March, which is when the rest mm-hmm. of the Europe went into lockdown, you see kind of, you know, certain sectors of the Swedish economy remaining kind of still fairly buoyant, like they're still generating revenue, people are going out buying things, doing shopping or whatever. But you know, hotels and restaurants, for example, are way, way down um, as as people are, you know, avoiding places um, where they're likely to be in a crowded situation. So and 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 you know, I guess I guess you could you could argue, you know, certainly if they'd enforced a lockdown, then there would arguably be lower deaths. But, but this is the trade off which politically and, you know, Sweden benefits from a coalition government, which kind of cuts mm-hmm. across party lines. Um, so so they've they've there's kind of broad based political support for this for this kind of approach, this laissez faire approach, uh, which also it, it must be pointed out is, is also the one that is, you know, of course, um, recommended by the kind of Swedish public health authority.
3: Mm-hmm. And and why would you say and, and I know you kind of are speaking there about like this idea of it being this laissez-faire approach. Why do you think that Sweden decided to go in that direction?
4: So so there's a number of so, so the public trust. Um, the 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 health minister gave a speech to the uh, World Health Organization at the end of April, where she was kind of outlining. Um, she 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 kind of. See, sought to rebut what she saw as a kind of peculiarly Swedish approach and just basically said it's a pragmatic approach based on the fact that a we can count on high levels of public trust and what the government says and what the government recommends so so basically they'll do as we say and they will socially distance from Mm -hmm. each other and so forth, but then there, there are a couple of kind of uniquely Swedish. Attributes which I think make it more workable than elsewhere. The the, uh-huh. the the second thing being after public trust is is the broad-based kind of coalition governments. So you've got centre-right, centre-left, and parties who are all bought in to this to this to this approach, which was recommended by the medical authorities. So you might not have that in more kind of you know, politically divided or partisan parliaments elsewhere in Europe. Uh, thirdly, a big reason, I think, is that Sweden has by far the highest number of single-occupant households. Oh. So that's adults with no children, 56 percent. Mm-hmm. Incredibly, wow. That's uh, incredibly high. So that, that limits, A, that makes um, self-isolation, you know, yeah. quite, quite... Um, Quite effective, and if you're not, you know, as opposed to Italy or uh-huh. Spain,
0: right. where living you, with families you kind of
4: in, or exactly intergenerational households are common, then 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 the potential for the virus to get past uh, your cohabitants is obviously is obviously much more limited. Um, the other thing to mention is that Sweden has, uh, which you know people have known for years, the kind of Scandinavian exceptionalism and so forth, is that it has a very generous uh, social safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the self-employed, um, get, get most of their wages paid. Um, mm-hmm. you don't have to have a sick note and, and, and actually the government just tweaked the rules that now basically they will start paying you almost from day one, uh, that you're, that you're missing work. Gotcha. And so I, I think there's, people can feel safe that if they're not feeling well, they can self-isolate without financially kind of damaging themselves, whether, I don't know, in the UK or in the States, you know. It's, it's slightly more precarious, you know, you need to right. put food on the table, you might be incentivized to still go into work, even though you're not feeling 100%. And that obviously has 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 spread COVID-19. Um, and then, and then, and then, again, kind of tied in with that, the Swedish government has announced a series of very generous support measures um, for companies, uh, so not only helping with wages, so paying a clear majority of workers' wages, furloughed workers' wages, but also even with their fixed costs in terms of uh, they've, they announced a scheme recently where they reimburse um, companies a portion of companies' fixed costs based on lost turnover. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in contrast with the U.S., but not exactly unique in Europe, they have a universal healthcare model.
3: Right. So I guess maybe the sense that I'm getting there is that, you know, whether you not whether or not you think Sweden has had success, any Success that they have had wouldn't necessarily be able to be replicated in many right. other countries.
4: I think that's right. I think you'd have to replicate a lot more than simply the approach. You'd have, mm-hmm. have, you know, the the kind of the kind of you know, very trustful rapport between citizens and government. You'd have to have a a a, a kind of deep um, and confident welfare state and kind of. You know, both for citizens and for for corporates, um, and and you would have to have you know um, a sufficient number of single households uh, so that it wasn't spread between family members or or, or or your flatmates or something. So I think all those all those make Sweden's unique approach kind of relatively suited to it. I mean, it would have been. I guess some of the, the other Scandinavian countries share some of those traits to a greater or mm-hmm. lesser extent, but they've all chosen to go for lockdowns, and again, they've they have significantly lower mortality than Sweden, albeit they've seen uh, so far, you know, more economic damage, greater GDP shrinkage, more unemployment. Um, which is not to say that Sweden, you know, second quarter is going to be worse. Right. Um, and it's obviously it's a small open economy. Right. It's tied into Germany's manufacturing sector mm-hmm. in particular, yeah. so it, it too will suffer. But but of course, it's 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 generous kind of corporate uh, support programs and and also the government fiscal space. Uh, the public debt to GDP is only thirty five percent, so the government can provide yet more help without right. the kind right. of debt sustainability issues that like right. Italy or Spain or or perhaps even France. Gotcha. Well,
3: thank you so much. This was this was really interesting.
4: Thank you very much, Hannah.
5: Hi, I'm Jennifer Saba coming to you from my home base in Montclair, New Jersey. I'm chatting with Dasha Afanasieva. Hello, Dasha. Hello, hi. Who is hunkering down in her home in London. Um, So at Breaking Views, we've been looking at what will change in a post-COVID-19 world. And you wrote a very nice column about the future of online dating. Now, I would think um, apps like Tender would be screwed, so to speak, since everybody is in these shelter-in-place orders, et cetera. But you argue actually quite the opposite. So why don't you take us through what is going on in the dating world?
1: Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it is true that if you were using these apps to sort of get chatting to someone and meet up with them quickly and have a date, uh, then you're likely not to be either able or willing to do that right now because of the lockdowns and because of people being discouraged from going out. Yeah. Um, I have kind of since publishing the article, I have sort of heard of, of apps where people are specifically targeting the kind of the risky aspects of of meeting up in, in COVID. But so I'd say so
5: meaning that the risk of it is sort of like the the illicit kind of danger of it means that people want to do more. I'm sure a lot of that is happening actually. Yeah there's a bit
1: of that but let's you know I think it's probably pretty much on the margins that's that's your niche niche market. Uh, <laughs> but on the whole you know people don't um, are not going out and meeting up and on the whole people are adhering to these rules yeah. uh, which means that if that's the way you use Tinder you're not going to be di- You know, you're not going to be doing that. Uh, And also, if you haven't used dating apps before, um, right now is probably not going to be the time that you take the plunge for the first for the first time, because the whole the whole situation um, in some ways is even more surreal and daunting. Uh, But there is a real opportunity for dating apps. And that's that people also can't meet in bars and restaurants and they can't even sort of, you know, flirt by the water cooler or whatever. That's not the way. Uh, they're able to meet either. So in a way, uh, dating apps are really the only source of, of sort of fresh blood in our lives um, mm-hmm. for singletons. So um, so people are using them for, you know in, in that function uh, yeah. and to take advantage of that, uh, some of these uh, dating companies you mentioned, there's Match and that's, that's sort of the main one that owns a lot of the apps. They're creating video uh, add-ins so that people can have video dates um, and they can kind of get to know each other before actually meeting properly, or, you know, maybe they'll never meet properly. Um, And actually that's a very time efficient way to meet someone for the first time. You know, you get to figure out if you, if they're really sort of, if they have, you know, the kind of voice that you like, if they, you have to sort of filter out anybody whose laugh you find annoying um you know it's sort of a step closer to reality but without committing committing the time of a, f- a full date um so in that sense it's actually a really time efficient way of filtering people out and that's why yeah. i'm arguing that it will probably once people get used to doing that and yeah it's a bit weird at first but once they get over that hurdle um they'll they'll keep doing it Is yeah well
5: i what was interesting like in match they had their shareholder letter that came out in may and you know one of the the trends that they noted was that people under 30 are actually um they, they notice an uptick in usage across all of their apps so they own like tender as we said and, and and match and i think plenty of fish and okcupid and they saw an uptick in, in women under 30, which I thought was really interesting And in that they were, they were using the apps more, they were having longer conversations. Um, and just the fact that it was a dichotomy of like younger people doing it was really interesting to me. Of course, they said that, you know, there's a reluctancy to spend on subscriptions, obviously, since people are worried about where they're gonna get their next paycheck, so to speak. Um, But I also found it interesting, too, that that did not hold for older people, you know, that were, you know, 30 or or above. So, I mean, did you notice, like, any trends that were happening prior to the pandemic that now seem to just kind of be accelerating, just in terms of how people date and and the the age cohorts of it? Like, are younger people doing this more? Are they going out and, and having more hookups, that sort of thing?
1: Well, I think that, um, you know, younger people were using these apps a lot. And that's sort of the main, the main growth driver for a lot of them, especially for the newer apps. Because if you think about something like Tinder, it has an older age cohort just because it's been around for longer. So people, you know, yeah. stick with it. Um, but they have that the phenomenon, if you will, with these apps is that they've created a hookup culture uh, in a sense, or that's what it's been dubbed. And it's very difficult to kind of come up with numbers for whether people are actually having casual sex more or not. There are lots of sort of conflicting studies that debate whether it's, you know, it's just um, society and sort of society's acceptance and the fact that people talk about it in the movies or whether it really is the, you know, the fact, um, something that's happening as a trend on average, sort of statistically robustly. Um, But it's certainly sort of socially speaking a thing that we're aware of something that's a lot more socially acceptable and that's largely because it is so easy um, with these um and and that's kind of you know how in the beginning how tinder burst on the scene is is this sort of sense of you share very few profile details you're not necessarily interested in uh you know sort of someone's life goals or their true values but you just see their photos and you instantaneously make the decision of whether you want to talk to them or not Um, that immediacy is why these apps are associated with the hookup culture Um, and I think in in the same way now you know it's not that people I don't think it's true to say that because of coronavirus and because people are afraid to get it you know all casual sex is going to stop but I think um, I think that this sort of acceptance and it as a social movement as sort of a, as a trend, I think is going to ease off, um, just because it's, it's sort of a bit icky and thinking about it, it's kind of, as opposed to, you know, you, you sort of have to think about, um, the vibe of the thing as opposed to each individual's decisions, which might still be to go out and as Dr. Yeah. Dr. Fauci in the US said, take risks by meeting up with people.
5: I think risk is also like a really uh, interesting point about these apps too, because it, let's go back to the fact that Match was seeing um, more women uh, going and, and using um, using their apps at, for dating. And I mean, I, I, what's interesting about that is it seems to me that like one of their competitors Bumble, their whole selling point was that it was a safe place for women, women could approach um, people first, people that they were interested in first versus, um, you know, having to deflect somebody that they may not like. So I'm wondering if, because people are locked down and shut down, this is also kind of driving behavior because it, it feels a little safer versus
1: riskier. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, Bumble has actually had this video feature for a while. So they've, hmm. uh, you know, they've seen a lot of uh, growth in, in how much sort of people are using uh, video calling. But I think from, from my reporting, you do really get the sense uh, that women um, using, I'd say, obviously, the heterosexual apps are finding that they have this sort of safer space, um, that there's I mean, I really don't like gendering all of this stuff because it does go into these stereotypes. So you kind of have to be careful. But, yeah. But there is a sort of um, a, a reduction in in sort of women being worried about the, you know, predators and about kind of, um, you know, you know, sort of things getting getting a bit too intense quickly or being pressured to sort of meet up or you know that aspect. Um, I'd say the more maybe sexually aggressive aspect of online dating Uh, and instead again it's very gendered observation but there's this this refocus on on the romance and the the sort of chatting for a bit and having video calls and then maybe going for a walk in the park at a two meter distance yeah and I have been told that that's you know that's making women feel uh, more assured and, and more comfortable with using these apps
5: Huh. Okay, well, that is um, interesting, and I know you'll you'll continue to look at this topic as we uh, as we progress. <laughs> Hopefully, we will um, get out of lockdown at some point. But um, Dasha, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it, and stay safe and healthy.
3: Thanks so much. Take care. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank our guests, Anthony Curry, Chris Thompson, and Dasha Afanouskaya. And hats off to our producers, Laura Browner, Sharon Lamb, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.